Um, we are going to continue this morning in a series we've going, been looking at for the last couple of weeks that really it's going to take up our whole spring out of the book of Hebrews. And, and we're going to finish with chapter 2 today. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, you can go to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. We're going to read through the end of the chapter, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, you can pick the pew Bible up in front of you or you can look at the screen behind me. It is also, I think, printed for you in the worship folder. So I just find some place to put your eyes on the scripture as we read together, beginning in verse 9. Let's read. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who sanctified all have one source. That is why... He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. I will remind you, by way of introduction, that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were thinking about giving up. They were experiencing persecution and social pressure. And Hebrews, this letter was written to encourage them to keep going, but to also show them where to find the power, the energy, the courage to keep going. And so, for example, from Hebrews 12, which is printed on the front of your worship folder, and you can look at it there if you want to, the writer of Hebrews says, let us run, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so clings so closely to us and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us looking to Jesus, he says, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so the power for successful Christian living comes from looking to Jesus, continually, obsessively going back to the truth of the gospel, paying attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the gospel that is the power for saying no to temptation, and it's the gospel that's the power for enduring through the hard times and not giving up. So Hebrews is going to continually, we're going to see this, pointing us back to Jesus and trying to help us think out the implications of who he is and what he's done for us. Okay, And we're going to see that this morning. And this morning, in particular, the problem laid before us is just this, and it's very clear and very straightforward in verses 14 and 15, that the problem in so many of our lives is that we are being enslaved by the fear of death. You see that right there. And so if that's true, then there are three truths that I think this this text brings out that we need to kind of wrap our minds around, that we need to pray God would put, bring into the center of our lives. And if they come into the center of our lives, it will undo this fear of death that Hebrews says just enslaves us. And the three truths are just this, that Jesus is our champion, that Jesus is our high priest, and that Jesus is our brother who's not ashamed of us. And then the result of those truths coming into our lives will be there'll be no more fear of death. And then I just want to finish by asking the question, what is a life 
drained of the fear of death look like? And so that's what we're going to do this morning, okay? The outline is going to be a little confusing. Again, I have to turn this in early in the week, and then things happen. God speaks. Oh, go, go figure, you know? And things get a little messy, but that's what we're going to do those, those, that, that way. Talk about the fear of death and how it enslaves us. And then these three truths. Jesus, our high priest, our champion, our high priest, our brother. And then just conclude with what a life drained of the fear of death might look like, okay? So let's begin with just this teaching of the passage that the fear of death enslaves us. Verse 15. You see that? And that means then that the work of Christ is aimed right at this here in verse 14 and 15. We're told that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. Now, let me try to summarize what those verses mean by just these kind of three bullet points. First, we're told that there is an organized hierarchy of evil in the universe. You see that? Hebrews mentions the one who has the power of death and then gives them the name, the devil. Literally, the word means adversary or enemy. And this, of course, is Satan. The archangel who, before the world began, challenged God for the throne of the universe and lost and was exiled from heaven and cast down into the earth. Christians believe that evil is personal. That there is a hierarchy of spiritual beings, a hierarchy of evil in the universe. Second bullet point, that the campaign that they wage in the world is a campaign of fear. You see, fear... It's, this is about fear, and fear is a very, very powerful motivational tool. It is a powerful political tool. It's a powerful advertising tool. And so the strategy is to keep us enslaved to fear. That's what Satan wants, to, to so inundate our lives with this campaign of fear that we just live our lives just completely overwhelmed and afraid. But, but the third bullet point is that the ultimate fear, or the fear at the bottom of every other fear, is the fear of death. And so this threat of death, here in verse 15, is the weapon that Satan wields to keep us afraid. It enslaves us, Hebrews says. So death looms at the periphery of our everyday lives and casts its shadow over everything we do. Now, in 1973, Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Denial of Death. And this was the thesis of his book. I've not read the book, but I looked at it this week, and I might need to read it. He says this, quote, The fear of death haunts humanity like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death or to overcome it by denying it in some way and denying that it is the final destiny for man. And so he wrote this big 250-page book about how this the fear of death haunts us, and so all of our lives are lived trying either to avoid it or using these strategies of denial so that we don't have to kind of stare it in the face. Now, John Piper, who's a pastor in Minneapolis and a spiritual father to me in many ways, he wrote and commented on Becker's book alongside of this passage in Hebrews. And he said, he said it this way, and I thought he said it well, so I wanted to read it to you. He said, The fear of death produces a pervasive, lifelong bondage. Even when we don't realize it, fear is haunting our choices, making us cautious, wary, restrained, confined, narrow, tight, robbing us of risk and adventure and dreams for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and the cause of love in the world. Without our even knowing it, fear of death is a slave master binding us with invisible ropes, confining us to small, safe, innocuous 
self-centered ways of life. Now, what Piper's saying is that on one side you have a life full of courage and radical self-sacrifice and radical risk-taking for the sake of God's kingdom. These are the, the crazy people that moved into Parker Street in Lakeland. And this is the kind of living... That's just basic Christianity 101. You know, sell your possessions and give to the poor, right? Take up your cross and follow me. These sorts of things. That, and then the life that just becomes the outworking of the very plain teachings of Scripture. And, but those, if we're honest, those kinds of statements, they, they just scare us to death, no pun intended. You know, if we were honest. And behind all of our fear... You know, underneath those things that Jesus calls us to is fear of death, which, which robs us of the freedom and the largeness of soul that produce a life of heroism and courage and self-sacrifice. And the fear of death, what it does is it substitutes a life of sacrificial love with what John Piper said, small, safe, innocuous self-centeredness. Shakespeare's Hamlet was right in his famous to be or not to be soliloquy. Fear of death makes cowards of us all. And we, I think, are in a unique cultural situation that punctuates this fear of death. Because, you see, 100 years ago, my wife, my wife always, oh, you know, we watched Little House on the Prairie at our, at our home. Oh, to live in those days. And I say, oh, to die in childbirth. Right? Because my, th- my third child, my daughter, was breech. We would have had a mess on our hands. But, you know, 100 years ago, right, Death was just an unavoidable part of life, and therefore there was this sort of acceptance of it, and there was this lingering eternal perspective on things because, because people were forced to think of something beyond life because life was so fragile. You would have eight children, and only three of them would survive. You know, 100, 200, you know, 200 years ago, only three of them would survive to adulthood. But what's happened is, is as we've become more fluent, and as there's been advances in medical sciences and all these kinds of things, we've become more focused on temporary earthly realities rather than than eternal ones. And what it's done is it's only increased our fear of death. I mean, we're more terrified by death than any generation before us because with all of our wealth and medical advances and all these things, it's created this illusion of immortality. And death then signals the end of all that we love and long for. And we really have begun to believe we can cheat it. You don't have to look very far at all in our culture, to see this small, safe, innocuous, self-centered way of living. And how behind it all is this fear of death. And Ernest Becker said, remember, two ways we deal with this. By, number one, trying to avoid it, death, or by trying to overcome this pervasive fear of it through strategies of self-denial. And you see this everywhere. And let me just give you an example. For example, our pursuit of comfort and safety and our avoidance of suffering that is a result of our unprecedented affluence. I mean, a lifestyle of upward mobility is taken for granted in our culture. And with it comes all kinds of things like a profound impatience and an unwillingness to do things that are hard or to wait for things or to do anything that's dangerous. And I remember my favorite story to tell about this is an interview that James Dobson did with Heather Mercer, who was one of the girls who was in Afghanistan when our troops went in, whenever that was. And, and he, he, they were just talking about being a missionary to Afghanistan. And, and James Dobson says, well, you can't preach the gospel there, right? And she says, well, no, you can preach the gospel, but they'll probably kill you. And Dobson says, well, that's what I mean. I mean, you can't preach the gospel there. She says, no, you can preach the gospel there, but they might kill you. 
And it was just this fascinating, you know, I was driving down the street listening to the radio. I don't know why I was listening to James Dobson, but anyway, for, it was just there that day. And, and, and I, I thought, see, that, that's the problem. I mean, we are so, we are so insulated by our comfort and our affluence that preach the gospel means they kill me, therefore I can't preach the gospel. It was just kind of taken for granted. And my concern is that American culture does not produce martyrs. It won't. And behind it all is the fear of death. But, but to, I know this is, this is heavy. I can just feel it. Oh, gosh. But it's here. I have to talk about it. Right? But the le- let's make it a little more levity, okay? Not only that, but I'm talking about even ways you can diagnose this in our culture, in our obsession with health and fitness. I mean, what are we trying to do? Look close enough. You know, every, oh, every two days, a new, some kind of something rolls out. P90X, and now it's P90X number two, and then it's, you know, this. And, then, and we are just a culture obsessed with, with health and fitness, and there's this dieting plan, and now there's these healthy foods that you can eat, and, well, you should eat organic, and no, now we should do this, and there's no, no sweet and low, and then all these kinds of things, and we're all, all just obsessed. There's just this obsessive thing going on in our culture, and I'm, it's, some of it's good, but if you look close enough, a lot of it is being motivated by fear of death. And then, of course, in our obsession with our physical appearance. You know, trying to fight wrinkles or sags or spotty skin. Can I be your friend and tell you it's a losing battle? Our bodies are wasting away. I'm 36, and I know this. And talk to me at 5 o'clock this afternoon after I run 3.2 miles and jump over fire. Right? I woke up in cold sweats this morning. I mean, our bodies, our bodies are falling apart. And really what's happening is it's, it's this denial of the reality of our approaching death. And so what, we're see, what we see here is that this fear of death, and you can see it in all these different ways, enslaves us. So the threat of death then is always there, looming over our lives, causing us to spend an inordinate amount of time and money and energy trying to avoid it or to live in denial of it or to cheat it in some way. And the result... I'm afraid, is small, safe, innocuous, self-centered lives. No heroism, no courage, no radical self-denial, self-sacrifice. And my worry is, and I need to say, that's not Christianity. And here's why I say that. Because of what Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 teaches. And it's just this, that the work of Christ then is aimed right at freeing us from this fear of death. And so a Christian is somebody who has had the fear of death drained from their life and is free to risk and adventure and dream for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and the cause of love in the world. But how does that happen? And the answer is there are three truths that have to come into the center of your life. And I want to work through them really quick and then be done. Three truths that have to come into the center of your life. And the first one is just this. First, you have to see Jesus as your champion going out to battle against sin and death in your place. So here's how the fear of death begins to get drained. First, Jesus is our champion. And this idea that Jesus is our champion comes from verse 10. And if you see there in verse 10, we read, For it was fitting that God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder, and that's the word we're interested in there, founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And that word founder means something like pioneer or author or leader or captain. It's the word that in that, in the, in the, Hellenistic culture was used for a hero 
of a city that founded the city and then gave his name to the city and became the guardian of the city. And that's kind of the cultural background. But William Lane, who's a commentator on the book of Hebrews, says that the best understanding of the word would have come from the popular cult figures of the, in the Hellenistic world, these divine heroes who came down out of heaven to earth in order to rescue humankind. And, for example, one of the most famous stories would have been the story of Hercules, who wrestled with death at one point in the story of, of Hercules, you know, in order to save his friends from death coming to take them. And so what William Lane does is in light of all this kind of cultural background, he says that the best translation of the word founder there in verse 10, 10 is the word champion. And what he means by champion is kind of this, this settled historical, cultural way of, of doing battle. And so the best example that I know to give you is the story of David and Goliath in the book of First Samuel. And if you remember the story of Goliath and David in First Samuel, Goliath would come out every day and he would say to the Israelite army, pick a champion and your champion will come out and will fight against me. And instead of the armies wiping one another out, you know, I will fight for my people and he will fight for his people. And if I am victorious over him, then we are victorious. And if he is victorious over me, then you are victorious. And so this this idea of there being a representative or a champion that comes out to fight for his people or a champion that comes out to fight as his people. And so when Hebrews says that Jesus is the founder, it means that he is this champion who has come out to do battle in our place. And there's this Old Testament motif of God as a divine warrior who arms himself in order to defend his people from their enemies. In Isaiah 49, we read him a few minutes ago, Isaiah portrays God as a champion engaged in combat on behalf of his people. And so I want to dig a little deeper because there are huge practical consequences to this. Because you see, the idea is representation. When David fought as Israel's champion, he fought as their legal representative. In other words, he was not just fighting for them. David was fighting as them. If he was victorious, they were victorious. If he fell, they fell to the Philistines. They were going to be treated as if they had done Everything that he had done. And the big, the big theological idea of this passage is that Jesus has come into the world to act as our champion, our representative. Follow the argument in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then again in verse 17. Therefore, in order to help or take hold of us, that's what the word means, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now think about that for just one minute with me, okay? I mean, is that not the most ridiculous, most wonderful thing you've ever heard? Jesus, the eternal creator of heaven and earth, became like us. That means that as a child, he had to learn to walk and talk, just like every other child does. It means he got the flu and migraine headaches, that he struggled with loneliness, that he grieved the loss of a father or a grandparent or a friend, that he battled greed and pride and sexual temptation. He was made like us in every respect, Hebrews says. This was the suffering there in verse 10 that Hebrews talks about, through which he was made perfect. And that word means he was made perfectly fit to fulfill the duties to which he was assigned. By becoming like us in every way, by sharing in our physical weakness and temptations, he was able to become our representative, our champion, so that he might live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died. And if you're a Christian if you've put your whole heart's trust and confidence in Jesus, then by faith you are mysteriously united to him so that his life becomes your life. He lived as you, and his death becomes your death. He died as you. 
And this is exactly what Hebrews says there. Look at verse 9, that he has tasted death for everyone. And I've got good news. What the Bible says is because Jesus tasted death for us, we will never taste it. I mean, this is the strange way the Bible talks about the Christian's experience of death. John 8, 15, for example. Listen to how Jesus says this. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And then again, the next verse. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now, what does Jesus mean? Does he mean that Christians will never die? Of course not. He doesn't mean that Christians will never die, but that even in dying, we don't see and we don't taste death. Because Jesus tasted death for everyone As our champion, when we die, we will not taste it. And remember, Jesus did not stay in the grave. He rose again on the third day, and just as he lived as our representative, and we live in him, and died as our representative, we died in him. He also rose as our representative. We are risen in him and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And do you know what that means? It means Jesus has blown a hole through the back of death. He's conquered over it by his resurrection from the grave, and in him we've conquered too. And so we can sing the old hymn, It is not death to die, to leave this weary road, and midst the brotherhood on high to be at home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dim with tears, and wake in glorious repose to spend eternal years. It is not death to fling aside the sinful dust, and rise on strong, exulting wing, to live among the just. Jesus, thou prince of life, thy chosen cannot die. Like thee, they conquer in the strife to reign with thee on high. Are you a Christian? Because you see, that promise is only made to those who've been united to Christ by faith. Is your heart's whole hope for salvation in the work of Christ? If it is not, then for me to do my job... I have to remind you that death will one day overtake you and it will be a horror to you that only leads to a greater horror. But if you are a Christian, you will die someday too. But when you die, you will not see death. You will not taste it because what Hebrews says is that Jesus has already tasted it for you. He has fought against death as you. He's won the victory over death as you. He's your champion. And when that truth comes into the center of your life, then you'll be able to sing, it is not death to die. Because Jesus has defamed death. He's taken away the sting of death. And this is the second truth that has to come into the center of your life. If you're to be free from the bondage of the fear of death. You have to see him as your champion. Fighting against the devil and conquering over death as you. But also, you have to see Jesus as your high priest. Who takes away the sting of death. So look at verse 17. And it's here that Hebrews introduces us to the doctrine of Jesus' high priestly office. Which develops throughout the rest of the book, really. He says in verse 17. Therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be or become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And so there's a doctrine, the the high priestly ministry and, and office of Christ. But then it's followed by two purpose clauses. And I want you to see how this flows here. So first, Jesus took on flesh and blood, suffered and died, so that, purpose clause, he might become a high priest. So the purpose of the incarnation was to establish his priestly office. But then, second purpose clause. The purpose of the incarnation was to establish his priestly office. And the purpose of his becoming a priest, so was, verse 17, that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. But notice, very important, Jesus is not called a priest. He is called a high priest. You see that, verse 17. He's not just a priest. He's the high priest. 
And that's really significant. Everybody who, you know, is smarter than me says that that's really, really important because the role of the high priest was unique in Israel's life. Because it was the high priest every year on the Day of Atonement who would enter the Holy of Holies. And I don't know if you know the story, but literally uh, he would go into the, the, the place that was reserved for the Ark of the Covenant, which was, which was seen as the footstool of, of God's throne. And it was the place where God's presence dwelled and nobody ever went in there except on this one day every year. And it was such a scary thing. They literally would tie a rope around the guy's ankle in case he fell dead in there so they could pull him out. Because, no, I mean, you know, you don't, you don't want to go in there. I mean, oh, I think he's dead. Let's go get him. You know, those people. So they said so literally so they could pull him out. And he would go in there one day every year with, with the blood of a sacrifice. And he would sprinkle the, you know, all the different stuff in there, the, 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 the seat, the mercy seat on the, on the altar there, and would sprinkle everything with blood, and it would be to make atonement for the sins of his people. So God was angry with his people because of their sin, and then, but through this, through this sacrifice and this ritual, uh, God would be appeased, his wrath would be averted, he would look upon the blood of the sacrifice and not demand the blood of his people instead. And then later in the day, they would take another goat as a part of this high day of atonement, and it was a, it was a sin-bearing goat, and the high priest would lay his hands upon the head of the goat, and he would confess the sins of the people over the goat, and then the goat would be, would be sent off into the wilderness away from the people to symbolize that God was removing the sins of the people from them. And it, every year this happened, and it was the high priest who would, who would do this work. But what Hebrews says is that Jesus has become a high priest for us in the same way he took upon himself our sins and became a sin offering. And it's through his death on the cross that God's wrath has been satisfied and our sins are forgiven and remembered no more. There's sin away from us and we are reconciled to God. And it's through this that Jesus has taken away the sting of death. If you look closely at 1 Corinthians 15, our assurance of pardon, when Paul begins to mock death there, right, which is just so beautiful, oh, death, where's your victory? You know, you can just see him. Oh, grave, where is your sting? And then he explains that the sting of death is sin. And what do you think that means? I'll tell you what I think it means. What most scholars and theologians are in agreement about, that the fear of death that enslaves is at the bottom a fear of meeting God in judgment on the other side of death. That most of us aren't even conscious or consciously aware of it. But what, what is behind all of the fear, and this is where I think the Bible is so helpful even as a psychological diagnostic, because the Bible tells us that hidden in every human heart is this knowledge that on the other side of death we will have to stand before God to be judged. And you may not even be aware of it. Or if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might say, that's absolutely ridiculous. I, I don't know what you're talking about, but I want to say the Bible says it's there. That the fear of death, the sting of death, is this impending appointment with God for judgment. And that is why the news that Jesus has made propitiation for our sins is such good news. Jesus has satisfied God's justice. And when God looks at you on that day, if your faith is in Jesus, his verdict will be the one won for you by Christ, and therefore you have nothing, absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Nothing. There is no sting awaiting those who are in Christ. He's your high priest. Hebrews 9 says he has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor to offer himself, nor to offer repeatedly sacrifices as the high priest enters the holy place every year, 
But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin forever by the sacrifice of himself. Is that good news? Hello? And so not only is he our champion, but he's our high priest. But then there's a third. There's a third even better than that. A third truth, and then I'm done, that has to come into the center of your life that will drain the fear of death out of your life. Not only is he our champion who fights for us, our high priest who sacrificed himself for us, but thirdly, he's our brother who's proud of us. And you see that in verses 11 through 13. We live in an individualized culture where when you want to recommend yourself for a job, example, what you do is you list your personal accomplishments. You list your degrees and your awards and your job experience and all this kind of stuff. But other cultures are more realistic about how we become the people that we are. And they believe that we are a product of our families. And so when in the ancient times when you wanted to recommend yourself, you didn't put together a resume, you put together a genealogy. And what you would do is, is you would intentionally leave off the ancestors that you were kind of ashamed of, right? And then you would include, you'd make sure to include at the top of the list all the family members that were really important people and did really great things. So you would kind of leave off the people that you were ashamed of. You would include absolutely the people that you're proud of. But in Jesus' genealogy, in Matthew chapter 1, you find the most ridiculous, unbelievable things. There's, first of all, there are women, four of them lifted, listed in his genealogy, which did not happen in that day and culture. Not only that, there were scandalous women like Rahab the prostitute. And there were other scandalous people. They're all kind of, this was just a... a genealogy of the absolute worst sinners you could possibly imagine. (laughs) And the point is that Jesus thinks about and loves his family in a way that, that other people in that time and age didn't. And what we're told here is that we are among the people that he's proud of. He's proud to call us his brothers. So Tim Keller Pastor in New York City says, this double negative, not ashamed in verse 11, is the cosmic positive. Here's how he puts it, and I can't make it in, put it any better. He says, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've been a hitman for the mob. It doesn't matter whether you've lived within the gates of hell. It doesn't matter what you've done through the death of Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ, through union with Christ. You can be part of his family. You can be somebody he sings over. He's not ashamed to call you his sister. He's not ashamed to call you brother. It doesn't matter what anyone has ever said about you. It doesn't matter what your parents say. It doesn't matter what their verdict is. It doesn't matter what the world says. You're not ruled by what they say anymore. It matters what he says. We have a brother who's proud of us. And on the day of judgment, there's nothing more to fear. Because if your faith is in him, he's your champion who went out to fight against death for you. He's your high priest who is sacrificed himself for you. And on that great day, when you stand before God in judgment, he will be your faithful brother who will sing over you and will not be ashamed to call you his own. When those truths come into your life, your life gets drained of the fear of death. And let me just make a couple of general observations about what that looks like. What does a life free of the sting of death look like then? Well, first, the most obvious, it would be a life that is the exact opposite of what John Piper said in the quote I read at the beginning, right? Not a small, safe, innocuous life, but one full of risk and adventure. You'd have a new courage. You'd be free to make mistakes. I mean, isn't that what we love about all the heroes and the stories we tell, right? Is their complete disregard for their own safety and their willingness to fling themselves into danger to defeat the enemy and save their friends. See, that's what will start to happen. Another general observation. The victory of death means that 
death is the end of everything we love and long for, but that is not true for the Christian because for the Christian, what happens, death gets transformed from the end of everything we long and love, love and long for to the very doorway into the life that we most long for and love. And therefore, it creates a freedom to live, to make Jesus preeminent in all things, to not love the world and the things of the world for the world's passing away, but to begin to live with an eternal perspective, to live with heaven in mind, and to store up treasures there and not store up treasures on earth. But, you know, we could go on, right? I mean, you could see this in a bunch of different ways. You could see it, it would, it would mean a new expectation of suffering and a freedom to pursue suffering. It would mean a concern with beautifying the soul, not the physical body, because the soul's going to last forever. My life verse, 1 Timothy 4.8, train yourself in godliness, for bodily training is of little value. Right? It, that's there. That's in there. I promise. Train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, little value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds, listen, the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Do you, do you hear that? And then I think it also means we, when we're faced with death and the sadness of death, we wouldn't be overwhelmed by it. You know, we, we wouldn't lose our hope in the face of it, but we wouldn't deny it either. We wouldn't, we wouldn't just say, you know, grieving's for weak people. Christians don't grieve. No, Christians grieve, but they grieve as those who have no hope. They grieve differently than other people do because they realize death is not the end. It's the beginning of something greater because of what Jesus has done. But do you see, see, so much of the cowardice and the fear that we live with is rooted in this fear of death. But the good news that Hebrews brings to us here is that Jesus' work is aimed right at that to deliver us from the slavery of death and to give us a new courage and boldness that we might go and live heroic lives in the service of Jesus for the sake of his kingdom and the cause of love in the world. Gosh, that's what I long for. And if we can become people like that, then we'll change the city. And so let's pray that God would do that. Can we do that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess to you that, that the, word is, the word of God is sharper than two, any two-edged sword. It divides uh, into the very heart of heart, piercing our bone and marrow, and, and it, it reveals what is true of us that we don't even know is true of us. I mean, the word here just absolutely hits the bullseye in our lives, that we, are, uh, we live so enslaved to the fear of death, and it pops up in so many different ways in our lives. And we ask that you forgive us. And that you bring home to our hearts these three truths that we looked at this morning. That Jesus is our champion. That he's our high priest. And that he's our brother. And that they would, those, those truths would come into our hearts, we pray. And drain our lives from the fear of death. That we might live with a new heroism. A new boldness. A new radical willingness to radically sacrifice for the sake of seeing the kingdom of God come to the earth. That we might bear fruit in our city. That would be to your glory. Fill our hearts now with the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ, even as we sing this song, and drain our lives of all fear of meeting you on the great day of judgment. Because on that day, we have a brother who will stand and will begin to sing over us and will say, that one is mine, and not be ashamed to call us his own. Um, So as we sing now, uh, encourage in the true sense of the word our hearts towards obedience and faith, uh, that we might do good works that others would see and glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sting of death is the fear of standing before God.
uh, in judgment that he might proclaim a verdict over your life and the not knowing you know the, the constant fear of not knowing or, or being um, worried about condemnation in that moment the good news for Christians is is that because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf we don't have to wait for the verdict at the end of the ages it's in in him uh, and so the, and, and that's the promise of this benediction and so as I raise my hands over you receive then the verdict of God these are the good words of God, the Father, spoken over you because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then go, knowing of the Father's love for you and of his promise to care for you and provide for you, even in death, as he takes you through it, that you won't see it or taste it because Jesus has tasted it for you. So go and be a hero. Go and be courageous. Feed upon these words and go uh, and take up your cross and follow him. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.